Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And each week I bring to you some wonderful guests. And this season, season three, is dedicated to artists in recovery. So with me today, I have Russ Coleman, who is a sculptor and what I've seen is mostly stone sculpture. I'm not sure if that's predominantly what you do, Russ, but why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you, Nancy. I'm, I'm uh, Russ Coleman, based in the northeast of England, and uh, I sculpt in, uh, like you say, in, in stone mainly. That's uh, I've been doing that for uh, 40 years now, <laughs> um, I, I, because I, I trained as a as a stonemason with my father so I had a very traditional craft um, uh, craft uh, education uh, but I also do a lot with um, concrete and uh, I see concrete as, as um, just a bit more it's stone that's been cooked really so it, the process is akin to uh, cooking with um, with concrete it, it's all, all very similar to baking um, so yeah I, I do uh, but I've, I've done stone and bronze and steel and all, all manner of things whatever um medium expresses uh, what needs to be expressed really. and you said you've been sculpting for 40 years how many years have you been in recovery um i my last drink was um march 1991 so that's what 32 years um so you know and that amazes me you know beyond your wildest dreams kind of <laughs> still can't believe that it really does amaze me too every day that goes by and um when another full circle of the sun goes by, it's like, really? You know, I've been sober longer than I drank. Oh, absolutely. Same here. I think nearly three times for me. And I only really drank hard for 10 years, but I've done enough. <laughs> I know that's one of the other things. You know, I quit drinking when I was 24 and I used to tell people I think I had enough for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Yeah. Just a heavy hitter. So... Tell me, Russ, how sobriety has changed your artistic expression. Um, the two are very interlinked. I mean, I, I, um, I as I say, I worked um, in, in Scunthorpe, which is a sort of northern town in England, which is very much, it's a steel town. It's, if you think like a little rural Pittsburgh, you know, it's that kind of place. And it was a bit of a cultural wasteland, really, um, growing up in the 70s. Um, but... Uh, 
so I worked through the 80s with, with my father, uh, learning a lot of skills, and uh, I got superseded by technology. Um, I was mainly a letter carver, so I did very fine letter carving, but then I got superseded by sandblasting. And um, the, the, through, the, through that period, I was doing an apprenticeship in stonemasonry, an apprenticeship in bricklaying and construction, but my real apprenticeship was done in the pub. You know, that, that's the one where I really um, excelled. I thought that this learning to drink business is, is where I'm, you know, really putting my energies. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so I, I drank throughout that period. And then after leaving, I went to art college and I had this kind of notion because I knew I was, I, I knew as I was a, a heavy drinker, not an alcoholic, but a, you know, um, I was every, you know, <laughs> I was every kind of drinker, but not an alcoholic, and um, it was kind of getting in the way. I was really enjoying being at art college, um, and then when, when I went further on to do a degree, it was kind of apparent that if I if I really wanted to turn up and be an artist and and continually turn up and be like that then my idea of this kind of romantic drunken lush kind of artist that was you know forever in the in his cups but in his muse at the same time that wasn't going to wash I had to be um sober-minded you know I had to had to be clear-headed and physically the drink was taking too much out well so um it was just this desire to do art really to to make art that um brought me closer to the idea that you know I had to stop and when I tried to stop which wasn't for the first try you know loads and loads of times my partner at the time Mary she got to uh, AA and she brought home the big book and asked me to read the family afterwards to the family afterwards um I thought ah that makes a lot of sense I can see why Mary drink and then <laughs> um I I um I made the glorious mistake of reading on so I read Bob's story and 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 uh, Bill's Bill's W story and the doctor's opinion and I just thought that's my problem. It, it was uh, it was just a relief. I mean, it, it didn't get me to AA. I still had <laughs> I still had six months of drinking to do. But it was on that self knowledge. It was on the it was on the knowledge that I was an alcoholic and there was no there was going to be no good outcome to this. So that you know that that's the two together at the beginning. And they've been kind of hand in hand all the way along. So as I, as I got sober, I was able to, I mean, I was scared I was going to lose the muse, if you like. Well, I wonder if that comes from that romantic notion, like we, we tap into something more expressive when we're under the influence, whether it's drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I mean, I had that very notion. You know, and I, I was, you know, read Coleridge and people like that who, who would, you know, take opium and then go out and, you know, write poetry. And I thought, oh, that sounds great, you know. And I, I liked the idea of that disguise, but I just couldn't do it. And uh, I was really frightened that my creativity would dry up or something like that. Uh, if, if, you know, that I would become stupid, boring and glum. But it just never happened. It's it's one of those things. Creativity is one of those things that the the more you do, the more you create. It's like you get one thing. It's like doing a step four when you you put one of your resentments down on paper. It's down on paper. It's not in your head. You know. It's kind of and the, and the same with, is with um, creative. You get an idea out and get working. There's room for others. Oh, I love that idea, Russ, that you're making room for more ideas. There was a um, 
I listened to a TED talk by Elizabeth Gilbert on genius, and she talks about genius being like a genie uh, yes. to visit you with the muse, with the idea. And, yeah. and she said, if you don't give it proper attention, it'll go find another channel for Absolutely. the idea. And I love <laughs> that. I was like, yeah. And what you said is also true. When you give it your time and attention, it makes room for you to bring more ideas forward. And Absolutely. And I, I believe that more and more in, in these kind of later years, like a genius or a, a genus loci and things like that, though, you know, giving it more room and it comes to you. Yeah, those were very high fancy ideas. I mean, I, when I got to recovery, I didn't even know the word emotion. That was like a high class word for songs. I think it was in pop. You know, like, I didn't know what that meant. You know, I, I, I was completely repressed when I, when I stopped. You know, I, I got, got my ass on a chair and... You know, my head followed six months later and my emotions followed a year after that. And, you know, I, I love that uh, timeline that you were expressing, even coming to the realization that you had a problem, but it wasn't that you were alcoholic. And another six months before you came to AA. And when I first was in the halls of AA, I was not convinced that I was there because I was alcoholic. I had all these other ideas, like maybe I was a co-alcoholic because the person I was with in relationship with was definitely alcoholic and needed that those meetings and that big book and and then I thought maybe I'm a periodic alcoholic and maybe well I knew I was the child of an alcoholic and it, and then it dawned on me at some point that alcoholic was part of all those you know? all those <laughs> oh yeah okay alcoholic yeah. through and through just lots of different varieties was there a like a straw that broke the camel's back that six months later? That yeah, yeah. I was um, at my low, if you like, my, my rock bottom. I'd had many kind of lower bottoms well before I, I hit my, it was it was kind of that emptiness of the soul. A lot of times there would be financial lows, physical lows, complete um, breakdowns. But this one particular time was that deep, black pit staring at that and it was it was one f late february i'd i remember it distinctly i had enough money to buy a meal at college or go for a drink and i remember being stood outside a pub with uh, money in my hand thinking should i have something to eat yeah i'll have something to eat and i'd walk by the pub and then think oh no maybe i'll i'll go for a drink and I had no choice over that. You know, it was it was flip a coin. Heads I go to the pub, tails I go to the uh, to, to college. And uh, it came up tails. You know, we go to college and I'd say, well, best of three then. <laughs> and it was like, I, I, and, and that kicked off a day's drinking. And I'd spent my whole grant and I just ended up, you know, in, in the middle of town. It was blowing a gale. It was cold. It was windy. And um, thought, I'm, I'm, I'm either going mad. I know I'll, I'll go completely mad here. I'll end up in jail. So I went and, and wrote to my wife. We'd, we'd been married about five months. And I had to write to her because the communication had become that, that sweet. You know, it was kind of, uh, we had that. The mile wide bed within three or four months we was uh, either side of a bed with backs to it unable to talk it was it was a dread and i and i asked because mary had got to aa i asked to get and that, and that was you know 
It was phenomenal. And, and this lad came to me who was kind of my polar opposite. You know, he, he, was, he was younger than me. He was gay. He was Asian. He was, you know, and, and, and yet thought, why is he come? And then he started t- t- telling me about his drinking. I thought, oh, he, understands, he understands me. So, you know, bless Ronnie, he, he could never get it himself, but he could still pass that message. You know, he died. That's a story in and of itself, too. You know, the way that someone can pass this on to another alcoholic only because they know the demons that we've all battled with and not be able to get sober themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've seen it many, many times. You know, we could all fill empty chairs, you know, with, you know, friends and faces that, you know, never quite made it. But, um, you know, count the blessings that, you know, touch wood just for today they keep on and 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 it was those that that kind of getting into AA and doing all the things that were recommended do a bit of service start getting get a sponsor to meetings um and then after a while lock yourself in with a three um sort of two two year job service position at GC um, GSRs and all that kind of thing and then I my sponsor advised me to do not intergroup the region which is a, a longer term commitment three-year commitment and I was thinking why 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 do I do this why you know uh, and he says just just do it you'll learn and I did I learned a lot I learned so much about what goes into AA making keeping itself together as a as a group and and not doing running around doing everything being very pointed about saving alcoholics and you know for about seven years I was uh, riding you know I was in God's pocket as they say riding the pig's back um, or the hog's back and I was you know I'd locked into one of these service things thinking it's a bit inconvenient doing all this service when I've got lots of work on and I'm doing well and uh, within a year (laughs) within a year it was everything had gone off the rails I was going bankrupt and all those are the dark stories of recovery yeah (laughs) when you forget that the very things that brought you that success need to be changed right yeah yeah. and the ego takes over and like the acronym it eases the god spirit out and you have to learn that lesson again be you know on the brink of bankruptcy lose everything yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i spent uh, i had to christmas 1999 it was like the 23rd of december um i had to borrow money to file for banks <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> that was like the eye of a needle in one respect i learned so much about so many things because just like sobriety if you turn up to it and you um, put effort in you know it, it rewards you and, and and the art is the same you know just turning up to the workshop on the days you don't feel like making much or the muses and on you just tidy up and you know this this stuff that you know all of a sudden pops in and, and you're off and a lot of it for me has been because i made art in public places it was it was solving problems like problem solving for councils and and uh, public spaces so it wasn't always an imposition it wasn't people here's one of my sculptures and your town will look better it was kind of your town's in a real mess that's why you've got some money to you know to try and plaster put a plaster over it with you know sticky plaster with with a bit of artwork but we'll try and make a better environment than when we left you know 
when we leave it than when we came. And I uh, did some, you know, really nice jobs. I was involved with a, a massive two and a half million pound project, uh, two and a half thousand square meters. That's about 3,000 square yards of uh, public plaza. It was all joke. Um, it was like a highly organized granite lettering in white concrete floor. And uh, it was a celebration of British humor. Um, so, and that took three and a half years to build. 27 people running a work. We was running a factory to build um, 24 hours a day. So explain for me, Russ, were you one of the 27 people or were there 27 people working under you to create that project? So I've worked, I've always worked in tandem with other people. So I, you know, I I collaborate quite a lot. So this one was the the end of a 20 year collaboration with another artist called Gordon Young and a big design company called Why Not Associates. And we've been doing jobs, the three of us together for a number of years. And each time the jobs were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, I came up with a whole system for this artwork to be made so it's like that Gordon had this grand idea and I I encouraged him to write it and said no it needs to be bigger and much better (laughs) and the designers went away and designed it and I translated what they designed and it was based on sort of old musical hall post and I translated that into a large flooring I had many hats on many many if I want to see that I'm sure it's online if you googled the the comedy carpet blackpool comedy carpet blackpool back blackpool yeah and there's there's lots of images on there one of the first images that will come up on a google search is this vast area with one little figure on it sweeping up and that's me <laughs> just before it, somebody can own an image but not an image of an artwork and the the end of that job led to a, a big breakup i mean even though it was about comedy by after three and a half years it wasn't funny you know mm. it was painful and, and that happened over the the crash the financial crash of 2008 wiped out a huge part of the budget and stuff um, and that was the end of that kind of um, collaboration because um which li- would lead to later learning in, in recovery that this um i can work with somebody you know i'll work with somebody all day long but working for somebody is a different thing and you know it's kind of um, when people take advantage but that that, those are the things I've learned I've I've mentioned to you about the last three years learning more in the last three years of my recovery than I have in the first three decades and why do you think that is what do you give credit um well because that um collaborative thing broke down Mm -hmm. I've had to reinvent myself and go back into the gallery you know the the public art space was you know was based on capital spend so you know that that dried up so I've had to be a bit more nifty about how I make work and who for and um on my audience as it would be as an artist um but uh and, and that 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 was a good kind of discovery of my own practice because before it's always been in the service of, you know, I, like I say, it was create problem solving. Actually sitting in front of a block of stone and thinking, why are we doing different kind of, <laughs> and what are we making? So that was a kind of process of, of a few years. And then come lockdown when... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't get to meetings. I was still a very regular meeting goer. So I, cu- I couldn't get to meetings. We were sat at home and I was with my then partner, uh, wife of 15 years then. 
and things were just not quite right. I had a bout of COVID because I didn't know what was going to happen. I had it very, very early. It was like in the first week of first, one of the first people around here to get it. And we right. didn't know what was going to happen. It, it kind of brought in that um, mortality, even though I've kind of faced my mortality before. You know, well, but- there were a lot of days in the early weeks and months of COVID, I would wake up just with a little bit of a sore throat and think, is this it? This is it. <laughs> am I going to die? You know, yeah. and, and I I am, as a therapist, working with all these people with anxiety. I had one client say, I was made for social isolation, you know, and it was important for me to share some of my own anxieties that were like a tripwire, you know, created by COVID. And As you said, at that time, there were no vaccines. There's very little treatment. Hospitals were becoming overrun. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and what wasn't known at the time is that, you know, COVID attacks the central nervous system. It's it's slightly different than just the flu. So it it does bring that high anxiety with it. Incredible sort of, you know, when you can't breathe, when you're struggling to breathe and you're, um, you're anxious. And that led me to this whole thing of looking at uh, anxiety double making double sure that all those uh, step four step eight kind of things were ticked off the list uh, you know making my peace with everybody getting in touch with old 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 girlfriends and stuff like that that you know um, that on, the, on the step nine list were you know it was difficult in those early years you know it wouldn't have been wise to do a step nine at the time so as I was going through all that I came looking around for on Zoom meeting. I got a friend who had written a book about her recovery, ACA. That struck a bell. The adult child of alcoholic and, and the behaviours that are kind of stuck with that. So I did I did about a year in ACA and it, it it was it was good, but it didn't quite fit because I was thinking, oh, here I am with a load of bloody victims. And, and I had that attitude which was my adult child, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I couldn't see it at the time. But I started fishing around. There was this wonderful world of Zoom emerging. And uh, on one TED Talk, I heard somebody talk about under-earning as, as an illness. I thought, that sounds interesting, and that rings a bell too. Um, so I, I found some under-earners anonymous meeting, and I thought, oh, this is this is the this is me. I've been under-earning all my life. And then thinking, it's still full of victims. <laughs> These losers, you know. And, and, um, and from there, I, I kind of realised that under-earning is actually a symptom of debting and I was in debtors anonymous with it you know within a, a week or two and after hanging around there for a few months I realized that there's this business debtors anonymous so there's it's a kind of this little progression of different quick visits to different places but debtors anonymous is where I've landed firmly and it was in there that I really started to uh, understand because it's a process addiction you know and, and it's with, with with alcohol with food with um, uh, with drugs there's this kind of substance addiction and there's a mechanics to you stop it. You 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 look at all the kind of symptoms that come with it and you address it and, and you address the, the things behind it. But what had happened to me was the, the big payoff from stopping drinking. I mean, the payday is phenomenal, you know, beyond your while. You do get everything that's promised, work those steps. Uh, and, th- and that was kind of like enough, but I'd got this inner child running my recovery for 30 years. And it's like, well, we'll go there. That sounds exciting, but we won't go there because that's scary. And um, 
And it was in in DA when I started having to, you know, the the process of writing down your um, finances and your time and realising that it's about debting in time, debting in money, time and opportunity brought me to it. You know, you start reading the rooms and you can't deny when it's down on paper. And I'd never paid myself away. You know, I, I just had this messy bank account where I run my business out, my personal account. And, you know, it, it was all very messy. So that just said, you know, have a separate account for your business, have a separate account for your, for your, for your personal and pay yourself monthly. So I, I started doing this and I've never had so much money in my life in my personal account. And then I could start seeing where I spend money in my personal account. And I thought, actually, I'm spending it on everybody else but myself, my wife, my daughter, friends, tools, this, that and the other. And I was last in line. And that led me to all manner of kind of revelations to do with that, that putting myself last and people please. And I, for 30 years, being a people please, you know, I just could not do it it's like i know i shouldn't people please i know i shouldn't be a doormat but i would like like to help you you know i can't say i'm a nice guy why wouldn't i like to help you again i i I was definitely a freezer when i found out that there was freeze as a survival risk it was like well that makes so much sense because i never felt you know when i was getting told off i didn't want to run away and i didn't want to punch somebody i just felt nailed to the spot and could not move could not think could not do anything and and that has been the story of my life you know i'll make if i found i found out that if i made my mother happy when she was upset with my dad drinking you know she would she would stop crying and there was you know and we could all relax in the house to realize that it's autonomic you know it's kind of more that it's almost more than automatic so and i do as a therapist see substance use as part of a central nervous system disorder this is 30 years into recovery you're having these revelations you know, yeah. that yeah. that are great and they're certainly sending you to new places creatively and to just let those creative juices be expressed. And I love what you said about being present, just like showing up for recovery, you show up for your art, sit in front of that block of stone in your case and see what wants to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my um, favorite quotes by an artist uh, is a German filmmaker, Hans Richter. And he, he said, what and how to make and do, you only learn by making and doing. And it's kind of, it, it's mirrored in AA in that saying, um, you can't think your way to a better life. You've got to uh, live it, better living. You've got to live your way to a better, better thinking. And it, it's kind of, it, it's about turning up, being present and, and putting the actions in. Fake it till you make it, whatever. And I've been lately doing the same thing as like, once you get in the door of the gym, you'll work out. So I literally put myself into my studio. Like, even if I don't want to be there, even if I don't have anything I'm currently working on that feels like I want to continue, I put myself in the studio and then I make art. Even if I start by cleaning or organizing. (laughs) Yeah. Clearing yeah. a table, a space, yeah. And, and the thing I've never really given myself um, the luxury of, because, you know, I'm always last in line, is is that luxury of time just to sit and think and contemplate because my flight 
response when it's there, which is, you know, the, the bigger part of addiction is that, you know, is being in flight. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd just be busy, 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 busy. Just had a fortnight sat fasting in the middle of a woods, you know, nailed to the spot. And I was told by my first sponsor that the hardest thing you will ever do, Ross, is sit by yourself with your own thoughts. <laughs> I've just done it for four days and it was brilliant. You know, that's great to hear. And I, I love your sponsors. You know, saying the hardest thing to do is do nothing. Right. Yeah. Well, I love that you've discovered in sobriety that you are nothing close to stupid, boring, and glum. No, absolutely not. <laughs> One more thing that I want to mention um, before we wind up today is. The story, the archetypal story that many of us that are artists live with, which is the starving artist. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? That we're supposed to be poor. It's almost spiritual, like the vow of poverty. And artists should be starving. And that just makes me chuckle because I think about you standing outside that pub with enough money to eat or drink (laughs) (laughs) and tossing a coin and saying, if it's heads, I'll go eat. And it was heads. And you're like, oh, the best two out of three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I've always made a living. And that I believe is God given. That I do believe is down to the fellowship. It's kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're not in charge here. God's your employer. You do you do the footwork. Now, I've been, being an artist is kind of learning to live in that chaos and learning to live with un, in uncertainty. So you know, you're never certain of an outcome with that. Well, I'm going to start on this journey and uh, but it goes all over the place and it's much more of a um, conversation with the materials and whatever comes along. And so you do live to learn to live with that uncertainty and the turning up continually means you just have experience of good times and bad times. Northeast of England in Newcastle where I live, there's, there's a little collective called Artists in Recovery Air that was set up for people in recovery uh, ha- have a forum to, to exhibit their work. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Right? <laughs> and, uh, is there any last gem that you want to share with listeners? Oh, hey. <laughs> the secret song. No, I don't think there is a secret sauce. Just the, the, the fundamentals of getting sober and it's um, just show up. Keep the chisel sharp. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I do think the takeaway for me is the turning up, showing up, being present for yeah. art and for art. So in, well, in all things, yeah. Thank you again very much for being with us. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Hmm. But mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. I'm Nancy Adair, the host of LTGW, where we explore the stories from the dark and the light side of both addiction and recovery. Our show is currently free to listen to, and it's advertisement free. 
Therefore, we're relying on your support to keep bringing you these powerful stories.